From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. Space Command is moving to Huntsville, Alabama. Governor Kay Ivey revealed the selection Wednesday. Huntsville beat out bases in New Mexico, Nebraska, Colorado, Texas, and Florida. The Army Space and Missile Command and NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center are already in Huntsville. The Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition will fill the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment job for the beginning of the Biden administration. According to Defense News, Stacey Cummings will step in for Ellen Lord when the Biden administration takes over next Wednesday. Cummings has led the Joint Acquisition Task Force responding to coronavirus. The Department of Veterans Affairs is giving coronavirus vaccines to employees at the Department of Homeland Security. VA is giving the shots to DHS employees at VA locations in Phoenix, Los Angeles, Long Beach, California, Brooklyn, New York, D.C., Miami, and three locations in Texas. VA is giving the shots from DHS's allocation. The government's civilian space agency is undergoing a technology transformation. NASA's leadership says it's transforming in three different ways. Ron Thompson is chief data officer at NASA. He's also deputy digital transformation officer. Ron, thanks very much for coming on the program. Appreciate your time today. You, uh, you write about the three ways that you're transforming. It's work, the workforce, and the workplace. How are you attacking each one of those, Ron? Sure. Uh, thanks, Francis, and, and good to see you. And thank, thank you for having me on today. So, so these are really uh, the why of our enterprise uh, DT transformational goals here. We are really uh, looking at these three components as, as the, the key th uh, three tiers of how we deliver our complex mission. And, and, and year over year, how we do our work is getting more and more complex with our external partners, with our, our private uh, uh, sector uh, relationships we have, our international partners. And we're expected to deliver our work on shorter tight lines and have bolder outcomes and obviously inspire the world in what we do. And then our workforce, we're really looking for a way that we seamlessly integrate our employee experience at NASA. We really want to energize our people and make sure they're connected throughout the enterprise consistently. And we, it, we uh, improve what they do and deliver on high value work. And then the workplace, this is where we're really looking to make sure we work in a really you know cyber uh, environment like we're in right now that is flexible, adaptive, and then effective and efficient as possible. So this plan was underway before the virus, Ron. How has the virus impacted it? Has it changed the direction? Have you accelerated? How has this affected the way that you're going about your transformation? Well, the really unique thing with NASA is we have a workforce that is absolutely agile in what we do. So the first thing is protect our people. And, and when the virus first launched back, uh, you know, in March of last year, we wanted to make sure our people were safe. You know, we, we had the foresight to have the technology in place to work in a virtual environment. So we were one of the first agencies that actually pushed out very early and really have met all of our major milestones for the organization. So protecting our people was first and foremost, giving them the tools and ability to do what they needed to do actually was in place and we executed on that very, very nicely. One of the hard changes in any kind of transformation like this is always culture, Ron. How are you trying to change the culture and then keep it changed rather than letting people backslide into their old habits? Absolutely, Francis. So, so luckily for, for us, 
you know, changes in everything we do. You know, you go you go back and look at NASA history. You know, we 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 you know, every every obstacle that was put in front of us or opportunity that was put in front of us, we've excelled and met. You know, going to the moon back in '60. You know, having having uh, uh, safety uh, concerns. Uh, you know, uh, we we actually over, overcame those. So so we we are working on the culture uh, change and how we look at things. And collective, we work better collectively than we do alone. So that's the first first tenet of what we're doing. That realization that we need to come together and have that synergy to uh, to act absolutely uh, 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 chip in and see where we need to move as an agency. And that collectiveness uh, uh, is really taking us into a lot of different places that speed to market for our solutions and and what we do for our work has greatly increased during the, during this time once we realized it's not just a organizational view of things it is a holistic view across the enterprise you point out the successes that you've had one of them is this transition to remote work that we've discussed and there are others why is it important in a transformation like this ron to point out the wins that you've had while you're in the middle of the transformation rather than waiting till the end well absolutely i think folks need to see that it is value in in transforming uh the way we've done things in the past and and how we need to work differently in the future the agile way of working we actually were doing things uh, during our COVID uh, uh period where we put a, a contact tracing um uh, app in place so we're able to once uh, folks have, have, have uh, tested positive, we're able to see where they've been. We used our data analytics capability through a uh, COVID decision lens to show early on in the pandemic uh, where where the center, of, uh, you know, where the localized center of, of, uh, cases were increasing and where to make a determination to, to push out virtually. And then we're now we're developing a vaccine tracking application and, and looking at ways to make sure that we are uh, uh, protecting our workforce uh, through the vaccine. There are a number of data elements that you've mentioned, and I said at the beginning of this conversation, you're also the CDO at NASA. It strikes me as you're talking about some of these things, a lot of the things that you're undertaking five years ago, maybe longer, wouldn't have been possible at all just because of the inability, I'm not picking on NASA, every agency and government had the same problem, to wrap their arms around the data that they had and really be able to analyze it. Is that a fair observation, Ron? It is, Francis. I, I think what we're seeing with the uh, you know legislation, like through the Evidence Act, we're seeing data as a strategic asset. Uh, this is no longer about the container or applications. It's all about the data. So we need to make sure the data uh, is absolutely adds value to mission critical need. It is uh, uh, the quality of data is accurate, and we're seeing now uh, across uh, you know multiple agencies across the CDO Council, for example, the Federal CDO Council, our ability to share data across federal um, uh, you know federal entities is absolutely increasing. We did this uh, early during the COVID uh, crisis about six months ago we shared data quite uh, quite uh, nicely across that community so so data is becoming more uh, front and center uh, we have a long way to go to make sure folks really understand the value of what that data is make sure the quality is where it needs to be and make sure the veracity is where it needs to be too Ron Thompson thanks very much for joining me I appreciate it thank you Francis up next shifting to a resilient strategy to prevent the next solar winds breach straight ahead on government matters why a resilient strategy could be the right way to go you're watching wjla 24 7 news
I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. Welcome back. After the solar winds breach, some leaders are calling for a grand strategy of resilience. Implementing a resilience-focused strategy could mean taking cues from the private sector. Erica Borkhardt is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, senior director at the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and writing about resilience and war on the rocks. Uh, welcome, Erica. Thanks very much for coming on. What does a grand strategy based on resilience look like in your view? Thank you so much for having me. Um, so from my perspective, a grand strategy based on resilience is linked to the idea of deterrence, which is a longstanding concept in American grand strategy, but it has its own sort of distinct characteristics. And so deterrence is grounded in the logic of preventing adversaries from taking some undesirable action, either by threatening them with punishment if they do so, or shoring up your own defenses so that the costs of carrying out that action are perceived to be too high. And um, resilience can help with that latter part of deterrence, but in a unique way. And so if the U.S. is able to withstand and rapidly recover from disruptive events, which I think we're all starting to recognize are an inevitable part of our lives, then over time, adversaries may find that carrying out these kinds of disruptive events are simply less appealing. But this thinking is distinct from traditional deterrence in an important way because it doesn't aim to perfectly prevent all disruptions from happening. So in the context of nuclear deterrence, even one failure would be catastrophic. But with the resilience framework, we can anticipate that disruptions are likely to occur and therefore focus on investing in improving our ability to be better prepared to withstand and recover from them. So the nuclear parallel, I think, is a good one. There's one main difference, though. The inevitability of the cyber, uh, the, the necessity for cyber resilience strikes me as the main differential. We're going to get hacked again. We're not necessarily going to get nuked again and or ever hopefully and so i wonder what difference that makes in the way that one thinks about a resilient framework erica yeah so i think the difference it makes is really focusing less on trying to um sort of perfectly deter these disruptive events from happening and rather focus on improving our defenses improving the government collaboration with the private sector which um, as we know, in cyber cyberspace owns and operates most of the infrastructure, um, even you know the infrastructure that the government relies on, and um, doing a better job of um, sharing intelligence, um, preparing, planning, exercising, so that um, we're better prepared when those inevitable disruptions occur. What do, what can we learn from the private sector? What can the government learn from the private sector in terms of resilience, Erica? So what's interesting about the private sector, um, and I call it the financial services sector in particular, is um, uh, the private sector has done a lot of work in developing resilience frameworks um, and identifying best practices. And what I find interesting is that um, sometimes that's been spurred by regulatory action or guidance, especially in financial services, which has motivated that sector to develop resilience frameworks. Um, and so I think that 
the government, you know, the government has done a bit of learning from the private sector already, and you've seen this within the Department of Homeland Security and its effort to identify national critical functions. But what I see as the biggest challenge is that we don't have a systematic and comprehensive national resilience strategy. And this was an important recommendation that came out of the Congressional Cyberspace Delirium Commission. Um, so while there have been some good first steps in incorporating this idea of resilience, um, I would say the US government needs to develop a comprehensive strategy that systematically identifies critical national functions across the government and the private sector and then builds and manages resources to mitigate risk. So really putting those resources and investments behind that strategy will be critical, and that's an area where the government can learn from the private sector. We always talk on this program when comparing the government and the private sector about the different motivations, mission versus return on investment, but it strikes me that there's a parallel there, too, for the government to think about learning from fintech that um, you know, they've got a whole lot of money at stake, just like we have a whole lot of national security assets at stake. Is that a fair parallel, do you think? Yeah, I think it, I think it's a fair par parallel. And I, I would also add that, you know, it's not as though the government doesn't do a lot of these functions already, right? So the government does threat intelligence and threat modeling. It does dependency mapping in some ways. It does readiness planning and testing and exercising. The challenge is really developing that comprehensive and holistic strategy um, and also um, incorporating the private sector, especially critical infrastructure, into every step of that process. What will you watch as this develops, whether it's uh, from your position at AC, uh, from your position as part of the Solarium Council, uh, any of that? Where does, this, where does this go, do you think? So I think we have a great opportunity with uh, you know the incoming Biden administration to um, you know to see how the Biden administration will be prioritizing resilience and I'd look at you know who are the individuals they're putting into key roles particularly at DHS and on the National Security Council um, and I also would keep an eye out on the regulatory space there's a lot of sort of interesting um, emerging regulation around these issues that um, that kind of illustrates the nexus between the government and the private sector here Erica thanks very much for coming on it's great to have you Thank you so much. It's great being here. Up next, what career employees should do when they're left without leadership temporarily. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the role of careers during the transition. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The new administration will mean the changing out of about 4,000 political appointees. The remaining career employees, about 2.1 million of them, could be without agency guidance for a little while as their bosses go through the confirmation process. Ron Sanders is staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida. He's former chief human capital officer at the office of the director of national intelligence and writing about the transition in GovExec. Ron, welcome. It's good to see you again. You write something here that I find somewhat disturbing. You write, over the last six weeks or so, I've received a disturbing and unusually high number of calls from colleagues in government describing situations in which they or their co-workers have been reassigned or ostracized for speaking out. What does that say to you about where we are in this transition, Ron? Well, it, you know, while it's anecdotal, it certainly isn't a scientific sample. 
Uh, it does suggest um, a lot of smoke and where there's smoke, there's fire, you know, is a purge going on? And Francis, I have to tell you what I find odd is that typically this happens at the beginning of an administration. New appointees come in and it's natural that they distrust many of their career executives. In fact, those appointees probably ran as part of an administration pledging to make changes in Washington. Um, but usually within the first six, nine, 12 months, trust is built, civil servants um, um, help the political appointee understand the lay of the land. The political appointee comes to know and uh, trust the civil servant, especially when it comes to speaking truth to power. And the remaining three plus years works just fine and transition is smooth. What's happening this year, um, and it's, it, it's uh, unusual, is that this that distrust is happening on the back end. And um, I hope there's not a purge going on, but uh, I think there is fair warning that that's something somebody ought to be looking into. All right, uh, that concept of truth to power you point out in your GovExec piece as the number one obligation, the number one responsibility that careers have to politicals. Why so, Ron? Well, I think that's the reason for having a career civil service, a professional civil service, is to say to, particularly at the top layer, uh, we're talking about senior executives, uh, individuals that have a direct reporting relationship to a new appointee. You gotta tell them the way it is. You gotta speak truth. This is what the program allows you to do. This is what the law says. This is current policy. If that appointee wants to change it, there are ways to change it. Uh, I, for one, have never ever counseled uh, career civil servants to say to a new appointee, can't do that, tried it, it failed, stop. I think we are always in the business of giving that appointee options, but it is in those options that truth must prevail. Here are, here's the reality of the situation. You may have pledged to change the world and we can help you change the world, but it may take a little bit more time than just uh, issuing an administrative fiat. So it's that function that I believe a career executive uh, has to perform, particularly with an incoming administration. You write about federal employees weighing their options when they're asked to do something. What is the difference, Ron, between subordination and doing what that uh, employee thinks is the right thing or, or is the, the, the moral thing? Well, that's a really tricky one, Francis. Uh, again, on one hand, we serve the government of the day and if, a, uh, if a, an official of that government of the day gives us a lawful order, we should follow it. On the other hand, as I point out in my piece, uh, not all laws are clear. In fact, most of them are written to be deliberately ambiguous. Uh, not orders are uh, clearly legal. And at the end of the day, I think the reason we have a career civil service, and this makes some people nervous, but the reason we have a career civil service is to deal with that ambiguity and, and ask, is this in the interest of the nation? And respond accordingly. It's a matter of personal conscience. I would never counsel uh, a, um, a civil servant to do one thing or the other. Uh, there are no easy answers here. There are only very hard questions and uh, individual personal matters of conscience that um, that have to um, be addressed. We just have a couple of minutes left, Ron, and there's two more things in your piece. There's a lot more in your piece, but two more things in particular that I want to ask you about. One is that you counsel people to know when it's time to resign and know when it's time to go underground. How do you know either one of those, Ron? Well, you don't. 
again, no easy answers, just hard questions. Uh, resigning is a grand gesture. You get it's liberating, but you lose your seat at the table. You can no you no longer have that informal uh, backroom influence with a with a new administration. So the stakes are high, and they better be worth it if you're going to go public because you do burn some bridges. I've burned them myself. Going underground, particularly if it's in the interest of um, the nation to take a, what is otherwise a lawful order, but say to yourself, wait a minute, if I do this, it's contrary to the clearly stated policy objectives of the duly elected incoming administration, and it's gonna be really hard to undo. In effect, it binds them, even though the people have spoken. And, and again, I can't give civil servants the easy answer to that. They gotta ask the question, and at the end of the day, the question is, is it for the good of the nation? You gotta answer them. Tough choices to make between now and next Wednesday for some people, Ron. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Uh, thank you, Francis. Thanks for the opportunity. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.